Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mezzanine. Won't you please take your seats and silence your cell phones. Daring Fireball Productions, in association with the Daring Fireball Company, LLC, is delighted to welcome you to a Daring Fireball presentation of The Talk Show, live from WWDC 2016. And now, won't you please welcome your host, John Gruber. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I actually needed that reminder. My cell phone was not on, on silent. Thank you, Mike. Um, uh, I will start by thanking our sponsors. Um, this is the fifth year, actually, we've been doing, I've been doing this show at least, uh, fourth time here at Mezzanine. And I think that uh, MailChimp has been sponsoring our bar all along. And if not, it's at least as far back as I remember. Um, so uh, it, just in case it isn't clear, the bar is on the house. It is on MailChimp. MailChimp, if you guys don't know, they are in uh, uh, email newsletters, uh, like my friend Ben uh, Thompson, Stratigary, goes out through MailChimp. Uh, they also have a bunch of new features, uh, stuff that integrates with online stores uh, and integration, uh, just about any online store platform that you might be familiar with. And then you can get your customers to get email when products that they're interested uh, are available or whatever. Great company. If you need to send email, <laughs> go to MailChimp.com. And please, let's hear it for them for the open bar. Also back with us for the fourth consecutive year uh, as a sponsor of the show is Microsoft. And at four years, it's not even like a, whoa, that's weird, Microsoft sponsoring. No, it's like awesome. And, and it makes total sense. They have this website. It's going to give you so much more information than I have time to give you now. Anydevanyapp.com. That's the message they're trying to give, that any developer, if you're working on mobile or the web, for any type of app, if you need cloud services. Uh, it's now called the Azure App Service. If you need that sort of stuff, go check it out. Their website has so much information. Here's the funny thing. They had the same website last year, but instead of anydevanyapp.com, I said anyappanydev.com. <laughs> and we are, in fact, streaming this live. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the show went on, and in the meantime, I gave out the wrong URL for... A, a, pretty pricey sponsorship. <laughs> and what happened is there was some kid in Australia who was watching the live stream who quick like jumped on and registered the domain. <laughs> this is a true story. This is an absolute true story. If you guys see Matt Hansing, he's here uh, representing Microsoft. He's about this tall. Uh, him and Hockenberry are going to have a fight after the <laughs> show's over. Um, you can ask him. He'll vouch for this. So they got in contact with him and were like, oh man, that's what Microsoft thought. We better get this domain and it was already gone. And they contacted the kid and they were like, oh man, this kid is going to, you know, he's really going to let us have it. And he was like, well, one of those Xboxes would be nice. <laughs> so they, they sent the kid like a box like with an Xbox and like all the cool stuff that you could possibly imagine it goes with an Xbox and they got the domain. 
So I think it's safe that you, you can just go check out the information from Microsoft. Go to any app or anydev.com. No, anydevanyapp.com, Microsoft, uh, great sponsor. And then last but not least, we have one more sponsor. This one's new, and surprisingly, this is the thing, because we think Microsoft, well, how are you going to go bigger than that? But this is actually one of the few, I mean, I'm guessing maybe three or four corporations in the world with a larger market cap than Microsoft. Uh, it's meh.com. Uh, Mad.com is the store that I would run if I were going to run like an online store. And I mean, let me be clear, I have absolutely zero interest in running a store. It seems, it seems like a terrible job. Uh, and a lot of hard work, and I, I don't like either of those things. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to run a store. But if I did, it would be like Matt. Here's the way Matt works. They have one product a day. That's it. You don't even know what it is. You have to like go there at midnight. You find out what they're selling today. It's one thing. Daily deal, usually at like an unbelievable price. I'm, I've said this before, I'm half worried that they're like stealing these things and <laughs> that I don't know if me endorsing it like this is, makes me complicit in the crime because when you're selling like $120 stereo for $14, usually that was, you know, it's like that scene in Goodfellas where they're selling cigarettes out of the back of the truck. Um, but what they really do, the other thing they do is they just concentrate on making everything real funny. They, the descriptions of the products are real funny. They have funny videos every day. And I, I really do get the feeling that they'd be happy if you just go there and check them out every day and you never buy anything. They even That's like the gimmick of the thing is like, here's the product, buy or meh. And you can just type meh, and then they're like, well, that guy didn't like that. <laughs> so my thanks to them. Um, so last year uh, was a little different than the previous years because uh, we had an actual special guest. What happened was, the backstory on it is that it was a week before WWDC and I still hadn't asked anybody to be on the show. And I was putting it off because I kind of had it in my head that I kind of wanted to see if I could get Phil. And I put it off because I didn't want to hear no. And it was like a week before, I was like, well, this is ridiculous, I'll just ask. And so uh, I sent an email to Steve Dowling. I said, look, this is probably ridiculous, and so just feel free to say no. But I do this show every year. Um, and I think it'd be really cool, I think it would work really well if Phil Schiller came on and the day after the keynote and we could talk about it, nerd out, and, and go into detail that you can't get into in a keynote. And he wrote back and all he said was, not ridiculous, let's talk tomorrow. And next thing you know, a week later, Phil Schiller was screwing around, not coming out behind the <laughs> curtain and making me wonder whether, uh, I, maybe he went to the bathroom, maybe we miscommunicated on what the cues were gonna be. Uh, and it was great. I mean, I don't know how many people here were here last year. It really was great. It was the best time I've had on stage in my life. And then I watched the video and I didn't even really die watching myself. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Um, and it ended and it was a big surprise. We kept it under wraps. Everybody seemed pleasantly surprised and it just made it all the more fun. Uh, and then the show's over, and I go backstage, and people are like, wow, that was great. I can't believe it. That was amazing. That was amazing. And I start meeting people. And it was about three minutes, three or four minutes after the end of the show when the first person said, boy, you're really going to have a hard time topping that next year. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that, I, that did not occur to me because this is... <laughs> This week has been a blur. Like, I really just asked a week ago, and then we set this up, and I've been thinking on questions. Uh, and you're right. Um, 
And there's only so far up I can go. You know, there's only so many different ways that, that we could go up. So one of these years, uh, it is absolutely going to be the case that it is not as good a guest as the year before. I mean, one of these times, it really is going to be John Moltz coming out. <laughs> and that'll be great. And we'll have a good show. I mean, there might be more people leaving go to the open bar in mid-show, which you can do, by the way, please. Uh, really, run up a good tab. We're, we're good here. But... <laughs> This is not that year. This year, I think, I think it's a little better. Um, so this year, how do you top Phil Schiller? Um, here's how. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi. story. got a text message um, about 45 minutes ago, hour ago. Do you guys have any food here? No, we don't. We have lots of booze. Uh, so when they get here, here's what Craig, Craig has a boxed lunch from WWDC. <laughs> and that's what he's eating. And uh, a friend of the show and announcer, Paul Fossis asked him, is that a WWDC box lunch? And the answer is? It aged well. <laughs> it was an old WWDC box lunch. So let it be said, Apple eats their own dog food. True that. Uh, I, I can absolutely validate that for over 20 years of, of doing surveys from WWDC, Every single year, the number one complaint is the food. And so we resign ourselves to the fact that, that if that's the worst thing that comes out of WWDC, all is good. So, <laughs> it's tradition, so. <laughs> so uh, I always start the show. I started it the same way last year. I always ask the guests, how do you think the keynote went yesterday? Good audience. <laughs> Great crowd. Great presenters. <laughs> We're missing one. Once again, Phil Schiller was not on stage uh, at the keynote. This is becoming a new tradition. Um, I, I was teasing with Tim that between Craig and, and Jeff Williams and now Bose, I don't meet the minimum height requirement to present. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Craig, I honestly thought, I, I spoke to you yesterday briefly, and I told you, I thought you did an amazing job. I mean, how many people thought Craig... <laughs> Because you, it's not just that you're up there and you're good and you're covering stuff, but you, you covered like three hours of stuff in 90 minutes, or however long you were on stage. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. Yeah, I mean, the, the team did a, a tremendous amount of work and we tried to... Well, the, the article I saw on The Ringer today, I don't know if you saw this. The, I'm not going to go into details of the article, but the headline was, Craig, Apple's Craig Federighi is perfect. I, I, I read that article, and, and I can only confirm that it's half true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
so I, I didn't think about it yesterday, but today it occurred to me that there sort of was an, a recurring overriding theme in the, the announcements yesterday, which in broad strokes is that you guys have opened up a lot of stuff to third-party developers that was previously reserved for Apple's first-party code. Yeah. Um, Quickly, I might even miss some call kit so that VoIP apps can get the same lock screen privileges for incoming calls as the phone app and FaceTime, which yes. is yours. Messages, so you a WhatsApp can. Um, you, you can specify a contact when I text Craig. Default by going to WhatsApp instead right. of iMessage. That's right. uh, Siri API, um, iMessage apps, yeah. Maps extensions, yeah. uh, and even non-Mac App Store apps can now use CloudKid and a bunch of yep. other iCloud services. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> is that a coincidence or is that like a strategic part of the plan for this year? You know, this year. Well, with iOS 8, we, we started that with extensions, you know, opening up like the share sheet, for instance. For a while there, it was if we didn't build it, it couldn't be in the share sheet. And so we had to build a, a Twitter interface ourselves and a Facebook interface. And as of iOS 8, we started having extensions for, for extending the system with sharing, um, widgets. And so we, we built a lot of the technology with XPC services. If, Folks know what, what those are, and uh, out-of-process out of UI, and all the, all the building blocks to make this possible. And, and this year, we really felt like uh, giving the developers more and more opportunities to let users do what they want to do in, across all these experiences was uh, you know, a way that we could really make the platform better for, for all of our users. So uh, yeah, it all came together nicely uh, with Siri as well. And a big part of it, it seems to me, like as the platforms, plural, evolve, because it's definitely, a, especially iOS and Mac, um, what it means to have an app is more than, like on the Mac, okay, you launch an app and a window opens up and you are in this window and it's yours as the developer. Yeah. Or on iOS, it's a little simpler, it's like you get the screen. But now, to be uh, an app that's really taking advantage of the, the the best that the, the newest stuff that the platform has to offer, you need to be inside other apps, you know, um, uh, widgets inside iMessage. Yep. Um, I think that just makes sense for, for mobile. I mean, if, you're, if you have an app and the right place to interact is on the notification on the lock screen, you, know, you don't want the user to have to unlock the phone and launch your app in order to get something done. Or if, uh, invoking your app with Siri is gonna be the quickest path to getting something done. Uh, we want to make that possible, and so I think that's what you're what you're seeing here, as well as as you say, in, inside of maps. If you want to book a ride, or you want to get a restaurant, or any of those things, uh, it's going to just be a quicker and smoother flow if you're integrated into the place where the user started, instead of requiring switching around. Right. And so this is opening all that up, and I, I think developers are going to do a tremendous number of things with it that we didn't even envision. So it should be an exciting year. It's also just an evolution of the the success of the app model, right? We Apps, apps took off, been wildly successful, this amazing software uh, process. And then you want to have apps in your maps, you want to have apps in your series situations, and you want to have apps in your, you know, in your messaging. And so we like apps, we like them everywhere, we want to use them in many places. So to me it's an evolution of what's going on with apps in general. Uh, and you mentioned XPC, and I know, I mean, it's just a fairly 
fairly nerdy crowd. Um, but I do think I, it's a, it's a years-long shift where, and, and my layman's XPC is inter-process communication, and it's a way for different processes that can be sandboxed and all of the privacy and, hey, you, this process can't diddle with the data of this process without having it in shared location, yep. um, that they can still communicate with each other in a rich way. Um, compared to the old days, the Mac OS has always been extensible. And it, whether you want to go back to the classic Mac OS with uh, like a NITS, um, or the next step days with uh, things bundles, that yeah. bundles and input managers. And mm -hmm. remember in the early days of Mac OS X when, when we had the Haxies and the input managers? Oh, yeah. And that was, <laughs> and, and, at a, and in layman's terms, the fundamental difference is those were ways to extend apps officially or unofficially where the, the extension code was running within yeah. the process. Yeah, and from a stability point of view and a privacy point of view, really bad news. So. Uh, <laughs> We, you know, we started years and years ago with uh, mock messaging, and on that we built XPC as a form of remote procedure call or and, and asynchronous messaging, structured messaging thing. But we then created what we internally called XPC containers, which are really what you now think of as XPC services, which are the ability to package a whole bunch of code and let the system manage launching that code tearing that code down when it needed to, but exposing services in that way. <clears throat> and that turned out to be really important, even internally within the OS. We were using it for quite a while within the OS before it was exposed as a mechanism for third parties because it allowed us to set different security boundaries around different, this is really getting nerdy, but uh, no, this around, is good. around uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because, uh, if, if, if you're going to go load a, you know, some, some image format even or run a, docu run a spotlight converter or something that's going to run over, over all your documents, uh, you want to make sure that if that thing crashes, it doesn't crash the overall uh, process, the, the spotlight indexer or the app. Um, you don't want it to have any more access to anything but the one thing it's supposed to have to do the job. So this was all part of our, our security and sandboxing architecture. Uh, but then with, with iOS 8, we saw the opportunity to combine that with essentially remote views, the ability to say that the UI you see on screen that looks like it's all from one app is actually composed from the main app, but also one or more XPC services serving UI in, into that, and we manage all that. And that gives you this, this single experience, but where all the security boundaries and the stability boundaries are in place. And that's, that's enabled us to take uh, this extensibility model from something that was, you know, really haxy prone in, in the next step uh, and, and uh, well, init. Uh, yeah, the init's days, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and And make it much more stable. And so uh, that's, that's been now a building block for, for all these things that we're doing. And iOS 10 was just really stepping on the gas on the places where we could do that that made the biggest difference for user experience. Um, one of the most surprising changes, and again, I think that this is in the spirit of openness or flexibility on Apple's yeah. part and relinquishing control that previously wasn't relinquished. And it surprised me is that you can now remove a whole bunch of the default apps on iOS from your home screen. Though you, you would want not to. want to. <laughs> but you have the freedom. Just knowing you have the power that you'll never use. It's, it's one of my favorite pages on the, on the What's New site is I love the page because it even goes out of the way to say, you know, because of all the compression that we use and, and the techniques that we use and the shared frameworks, they only take up 150 megabytes. Yeah, well, okay, so, so 
<laughs> this is true. This is true. I, we, we should be really clear on actually what this feature is and what it's not. Um, because uh, it's not everything you might think it is. Um, so, uh, so what it is is you are removing, uh, when you remove an app, uh, you're removing it from the home screen, you're removing all the user data associated from it, you're removing all of the hooks that it has into other system services, like Siri no longer will try to use that uh, when you talk to it and so forth. We're not actually deleting the application binary, and the reason is, is really uh, twofold. One, they're small, but more significantly, the whole iOS security architecture around the system update is this one uh, signed binary where we can verify the integrity of that with every update, okay. that, that there's no mixing and matching going on between all of these different pieces. And so uh, if you go and say, well, I don't like, uh, what's an app that uh, someone would remove? I'm gonna get myself uh, here. No, I can't think of one. I, I... <laughs> Stocks. Stocks? Stocks. Some people don't follow the stock market. Fair enough. Some people do not follow the stock market, or there's not Which one in their country. Which is good for them. Yes. Something. Yes. And, and so they might remove that app. And, and when you do, uh, it's hidden, and any user data and preferences and so forth associated with it's gone. If you want to get it back, we were thinking, well, how do we, how do we let you restore this? And we thought, well, people are naturally, when they, if they want to go get it back, they're going to go to the App Store and search for it. And so you go to the App Store and search for it, and it'll show up, and you'll say get, and it will reappear. Because that's yeah. how they know to install it. <laughs> but, the download but, will be remarkably been... fast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Compression technology, good stuff. It's been, it, and it has led some to mistakenly report that we're moving these apps out of the system bundle and into the store for downloading, and that's not really the case. We're just making that the easy mechanism for restoring is, re is seeing it from the store right. side, but it's it's really still part of the system. Okay. Let's set the record straight here. That's interesting because that means there won't be like an update to mail that comes through the app store. It's just just like it used to be. It'll be part of the system update. That is correct. Um, well, speaking of the app store, uh, this last week, <laughs> a week ago. There's a reason I sat on this side. I just thought these two are going to go totally nerd out, and I'm just going to let them have fun, and I have no problem with that. A week ago, um, there were a, a bunch of changes, improvements to the App Store. Um, in a certain sense, you could, you know, or one of them, and it did not get mentioned in the keynote, but uh, review times for apps submitted to the App Store are way faster than they used to be. <laughs> We thought this is one of those cases where we could address a problem before it starts to boil over. You know, just, just an anticipation of potential future. Well, it, for the audience at the keynote, though, that to not even mention that and just take that applause is amazing because you know that it's coming and that developers are, you know, pretty happy about that. It would have been an easy way to get applause, but we didn't stoop to that trick. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, it was exactly, people have all these awesome conspiracy theories and they're fun to read, but it was exactly what we said, which was the, we were, we were working on the keynote, we actually thought about having a whole developer section to talk about the App Store in the keynote, and looking at keeping it really, we really wanted to get done in just under two hours if we could, and, and you couldn't really talk about that and the subscription stuff and the, and the ad search stuff and all that in, in three minutes. We really needed probably about 15 minutes to explain 
and, and, and it just wasn't worth losing 50 minutes of product time to talk about that and if we could instead just talk it to people ahead of time. So we decided to do something we've never done before, which is before the keynote, sell, uh, explain some of this. However, it was kind of tough to do because here we're talking to, to you and a few others and saying, here are things we're doing for the App Store, knowing that we still have to come a few days later you know, apps working with Siri and apps working with messages, and these are huge impacts on developers and a new, a new uh, store for message apps are gonna come out. And, and so we couldn't really tell the whole picture of all the things we're doing, so we told sort of half of it and, and waited for the rest. Well, part of it that goes together, so one of the improvements last week was um, search ads. And I noticed, um, I don't know if you noticed, before we came out, there was an ad uh, that showed up first as, as John, you did your ads before we started this session. Uh, I, I, it was really nice. Thank you. And, and, and I found two of the three were relevant to what we were discussing. I won't, for the, for the benefit of your advertisers, I won't mention which one I didn't find quite relevant to my interest. But. You, you. I was going to be nice. I was going to say, I was going to say how there's a, a tie-in that you couldn't mention a week ago, where the idea of the search ads is that it improves discoverability, and there's a discoverability aspect with the iMessage apps, where if I send you a widget through an iMessage app and you don't have it yet, there's a very subtle. You know, this was, I forget what it exactly says, but yeah, it gives you yeah. yeah, the, the two, you know, a couple of the really interesting things that the team did in working on, on these uh, message apps um, is, number one, that if I send you something, if I send you a sticker, if I send you a jib jab, you get to receive it and, ex and experience it without having to download the app. And so you can do that on a, on a lot of these things, where some other services you're always being hit with the, hey, download this in order to see what someone's sending you. So the team really wanted to have a great experience for the receiver, you don't have to do that. However, there is attribution there, and you can choose to get it if you're like, wow, those jib jabs are really cool, I wanna download them too, and share them with friends, and hopefully that'll become a nice viral marketing in addition to other ways for users to discover apps and messages. Um, on search ads, make the case, and you, you, when we talked last week, you did, and I, 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 on the phone call, I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And then and, and I went away and I looked at my notes, and I was like, I'm not sure I get it. Make the case, <laughs> now, on this part, on this particular part, okay. that, that the system that you guys have designed can and should be to the benefit of smaller indie developers, and it's not going to be dominated by the biggest companies that with the you know, budgets that are more than everybody here combined? So the, 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 two, the two sort of priorities we set on the team as they were working on it was if we're going to do this, we have to do it in a way that, number one, uh, protects user privacy. There are many ways that companies do it where they're not protecting privacy, and we need to understand that. And secondly, how do you do it in a way that gives advantages to small and indie developers uh, because it's easy to imagine a system that didn't do that. And so we set out to think of all the things we could do to make that possible. And, and there's a long list of things, and, and, and I won't go through all of them to bore you all, but, but um, there are many things. Uh, things like, first of all, there's no minimum bid, so we don't set a, a bar if you have 
a very small amount of money. You can just do what you want with the small money. The fact that uh, we're going to work really hard to try to make relevance the top priority over bid for why something gets shown. That the users are the ultimate deciders of what gets shown based on their clicks are a big input to what is relevant to the search result. Uh, the fact that we're going to work hard to try to police and improve the whole metadata system if we find, as it easily could, be abused to, to, to hurt uh, developers. The fact that, and there's been a hotly debated thing, the fact that you can do conquesting, you can use someone else's brand in your ad uh, words that you want to use, uh, as we thought about it, that is more likely to benefit the small developer than the big developer, because the big developer isn't going to pick on a lot of small developer terms, but a small developer can try to latch onto a big developer's name. If you want to search for Angry Birds in your game, you can, right? If, and so, so we think that that can help them. The fact that there is no exclusivity, so a large developer cannot say, and I want to be the top bid, and I'm going to spend everything I can to buy up this term. There will be no exclusivity. There's going to be a rotation there. And as that rotation appears, the relevance will help drive it further. So we're trying everything we can. Um, and I think one of the best things is right now, uh, once uh, we're in beta throughout the summer, the downloads the users get from the ads are real downloads to benefit the developer, but we're not charging during the beta time. So there's a chance for everybody to get in and try it out, uh, help us learn from it, and drive real downloads and real business without any marketing spend. So we're trying to think of things we can do, and we'll think of more. We'll, we'll take feedback and see what's happening and where it works and doesn't work, and who feels like they're getting stomped on, and we'll try to do all we can to make it better. And the, the last bit of news with the App Store changes, or the, you know, big, the third of it, was um, an expansion of the categories that are allowed for subscriptions. I don't know if you noticed, but there was a little bit of confusion last week about the difference between all apps from all categories versus all apps. Let me, just, let me explain that. Um, so our intention is exactly as, as we talked about, which is we're opening up um, subscription model to all categories. Uh, the, so what kind of an app you make doesn't directly have an impact on whether you can have a subscription model or not. There are, we, we want to open up subscriptions to all developers of all apps, that, that is the hope. However, um, there are a couple little, little gutches where we have to be careful, and so that's why there's, there's some caution here. Uh, number one, um, if you want to create a professional app and you're gonna maintain it and do updates and you wanna have an ongoing revenue stream, that's of course an intention of this. But, yes, yeah, clap on that. But, do, we, do users really want, and I'm sorry to pick on this category if somebody makes this app, because I'm sure there's examples where you, where you would want it, but do you want a, a flashlight app to now be an app you have to pay for forever with a subscription model? Users probably don't want that. And so we have to be sensitive, first of all, to is there some minimum functionality where users now get pissed off and say, everything's turned to subscription, I don't want to buy stuff anymore, this is not okay, and, and now that's a, a drag on business on the App Store, and therefore we all lose. So we, we feel a responsibility. And, and I, I read your, your thing says, hey, why not just let the market 
choose. Well, what if the market screws itself up and it does badly, and then we all lose? So we have to be a little bit sensitive to not do something we think that could backfire um, and hurt all of us. So we want to be careful about minimum functionality, so there'll be some guideline around that, which we already have a guideline on minimum functionality for anything. You can't just wrap a website and call it an app, um, but there'll be a little bit more minimum functionality for subscription. I think the, guide, the guidelines include, a, a long-standing guideline is that the App Store has plenty of fart apps already. That, that is absolutely one of the rules. Um, and then um, there is a secondary issue, which is, and, and we're working through this, there are certain, um, uh, certain states and governments where there are laws about creating a subscription revenue stream without a clear promise to the user of what they're paying for down the road. And so our legal team's been working with us on this, on trying to make sure we put in place in the store the right um, way for developers to make clear their intention to deliver value for that customer, or else they would be breaking the law by asking for a subscription with no intention to delivering value down the road. And so we want to be careful of those things. So those are the kinds of reasons we have caveats on it, but the intention, is, I think, is all what we all want. The Mac App Store, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's been treated as the ugly stepchild, but maybe the slightly less attractive stepchild. Um, and a couple of examples, uh, test flight, beta testing was in the iOS App Store. Uh, Craig, is it in the, the Mac App Store yet? I don't think so. I don't think so. All right. So no test flight. Um, okay, how are you doing? Video. <laughs> Video reviews, I know I, that's, it, and it seems like that really works. Like there's, you know, instead of just static screenshots to show your app on iOS, you can have a video that shows it in animation. And a lot of times for developers who are doing the, the, the cinematic experience of really making the app feel great, the video can do so much more than, than a static screenshot. Um, and all of the news last week applies to all of the app stores. So that yes. in and of itself is a change, a, a, a change in the way the App Store is distributing new features. Yeah. So um, we love all of our kids, and I'm sure all of you do as well, equally. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and so, so we love the Mac App Store. We want it to do well. We want to support the developers in it. We, we care a lot about it. We use it ourselves. It's a very important store for ourselves. We've moved all of our software distribution into it and are very happy with that. So we're one happy software developer that's using it. And, um, and, and, and we still think, in the long view of all of this, it matters a great deal. We think it matters for privacy. We think it matters for security. We think it matters for quality on the store. Um, we've all seen examples of apps that have been hijacked on servers where people download stuff that have viruses injected in them, and we don't want any part of any of that, all of us. So we think it's a, still an important solution, and we're dedicated to it. There are things through the years in the Mac App Store that haven't been fully implemented uh, because they didn't make as much sense in the Mac as they did in iOS, or the engineering effort was really high for, for uh, a benefit that wasn't seen as as big, or whatever. Uh, example, uh, so test flight. Um, you know, for the engineering involved there, you know, you know, people have felt that there are a lot of opportunities in the Mac from website to download apps for test and to distribute um, beta software. So the need wasn't as great. Right? It was a clear need on iOS, not as clear on Mac, so that's why some decisions were made and trade-offs there. 
Um, but as you say, uh, as I've been working more with the App Store team uh, since December, you know, I've really pushed the team to please make sure everything makes sense across all the stores as much as possible. And maybe there'll be some exception to that, that that we have to make, but we don't want to. We want to try to do everything the same on all the stores as much as possible, including the Mac App Store. So one thing the Mac App Store is is has been good for, and, and the Mac software ecosystem in general is good for is that it seems to support higher prices of apps for, for truly professional apps, deeper apps. Um, and there's a consensus, or you know, maybe not consensus is the wrong word, maybe you'll disagree, but there's a lot of people who think that one of the things that's holding back the iPad, especially now that it's the iPad Pro, from replacing a MacBook for someone who might want to is that it lacks the same depth of deep apps for work that the Mac has. And the reason is that the, the pricing pressure is more like iPhone style, couple of bucks, as opposed to Mac style, where $50, $80, $100 software is, is long been the norm. Uh, I think you see two things happening at the same time. Number one, the iPad's capabilities are growing as a PC replacement product for some people. Um, I know some people have made some statements about that. I don't, I don't know who. And, um, and, and, and so we're trying to make it more and more powerful, making it larger screens, keyboards, the more powerful processors, and, and all that's happening to drive it into a more capable product. At the same time, you start to see more professional applications begin to make their way onto it. And, and so I think we're seeing uh, changing, changes there. We're seeing Certainly, apps that have a, a, a similar version on, on your iPhone that you want on your iPad will have similar pricing. But other apps that are maybe coming over the Mac or the PC are bringing on pricing models that are more like that. And so you're going to see this, this duality with iPad that it's, it, there's a little of both happening. And we see an increase of the more professional apps happening. And when they see stuff in flight with developers we're working on that's really impressive desktop quality software, uh, more and more coming to iPad. Yeah, it's definitely not the hardware. I mean, because the iPad Pro stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with the MacBooks on any technical measure you can give it. I mean, it's beautiful displays, powerful CPUs, and stuff like that. So it's not holding it back. And, and I do think you, you, if you really look at some of the professional apps that are on the iPad, it's uh, I mean, some of them are really first class, and I, I think the iPad Pro is going to accelerate that. And we absolutely want to find uh, any way possible to make deep investment by developers in the platform uh, possible, because I think we'll all win when that happens. All right, new topic, privacy and, and security. I remember a couple of years ago, maybe more, I, I don't know how many years, but I was at WWDC and I somehow wound up in a session on security. I, I don't even know why I was there, but I, I was interested. Uh, I think I was talking to somebody. He's like, I've got to go into this thing on security. And I was like, well, I'll go with you. And I went in and listened. And at the end, it was when they were still doing Q&As. And um, I remember this very vividly. And, and somebody asked the question of somebody who was on the engineering team in charge of security. Um, gave a rant about how passwords are terrible and people pick bad passwords because they're easy to remember and passwords that are hard to rem or remember or hard to crack or hard to guess are unusable they're, or less usable. Have you guys given any thought to what's next beyond passwords? And there is this pause and the speaker, yes. 
<laughs> and it was like, well, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting and truthful answer. And we've seen, I think, in the intervening years, some of the things that might have been circulating. Touch ID. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, one of my favorite features you guys announced yesterday, can't wait to use it, is... Uh, auto unlock? Auto unlock. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about how, how that came to be? Which part of it? I mean, are, are caring about security? Or, well, no, no. With auto unlock in particular, the details of how, what are you guys doing to make auto unlock as truly secure? That it's not, uh, you know, that I'm not over here opening Phil's MacBook because he's, you know, in the room. Yeah, yeah. Well, a, a, uh, I mean, of course, this it's a continuation of the work we did with continuity to. Uh, develop really low-power BTLE-based discovery protocols so your devices could discover each other continuously with acceptable overhead from a battery point of view, and also all the authentication mechanisms we put in place uh, as far as having your devices know that they're your devices. So that's, that's kind of a foundation. The, the unique challenge with Auto Unlock is you don't want a kind of a relay attack where uh, Phil is actually, you know, well far away from his office, and someone basically has a Bluetooth listener that's going to forward a signal to, to you because you're you're now by his right. his Mac, and this Mac is having a conversation with Phil's watch uh, over a very long distance, right. uh, and so we're actually able to do time of flight uh, calculation using peer-to-peer Wi-Fi where we literally can measure how long at the speed of light it's taking for the signal to travel from your watch to your Mac and back. And uh, yeah. at the very fast stopwatch. So, uh, and, and because, of, because of that, uh, if you interposed any kind of relay, it would introduce a delay that immediately would tell us, uh, you know, there's, there's hijinks afoot. So. Yeah, make sure they type in their password. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And so, so that, that, that piece is critical, but I think, you know, on the, on the bigger picture, I mean, Touch ID is one way that we've helped with uh, passwords, but actually uh, on iOS, j the secure enclave and that whole architecture, the fact that your device is not encrypted just with your password, with your passcode, which honestly, whether it's four digits or six digits is short enough that if, you, if a brute force attack were possible, uh, it would be, you know, you readily could break into something, but instead it's entangled with a hardware key that only the secure enclave runs, and the secure enclave will only uh, do its unwrapping when running AppleSign software, and will only let you try ten times. Uh, and so fundamentally, yeah, we, that, that was the first, yeah, very important step to saying you could have a practical length passcode with really industrial strength security. And so we keep pushing on this. Um, continuing on the sort of privacy vein, I think it's a good segue into um, Siri, quote unquote deep learning, AI, these sort of features that you guys, was a big part of the presentation uh, yesterday. Because a big part of your onstage message about it was the emphasis on the way that the systems are designed to protect users' privacy um, and the technical implications of that. Yeah. Um, so one of my questions, when does deep learning happen? So like I'm on, I'm on the phone and I'm taking a couple of pictures um, of the event and stuff like that. When does the... the, the that, that analysis yeah. occur? Yeah. So. 
if you upgrade your device to iOS 10 and you have your uh, photo library there with your 10,000 photos or 100,000 photos on it, um, the analysis of that kind of backlog will occur when you're plugged in on AC overnight because this is this is a considerable amount of computation that's going to occur that we would not have happen in, in your in your pocket. Um, but when you're out taking a fresh picture, uh, at that point we will instantaneously perform the analysis on that hot photo as it's going into your photo library. Uh, we can do it. We can do it that fast. Um, it is like scene classification. I mentioned uh, yesterday. Is it yesterday? Yeah. Uh, that uh, <laughs> it's like a long time ago. That uh, that it is like about <clears throat> 11 billion calculations that have to occur to do that thing. Like that's a horse. That's a mountain. Uh, and uh, <laughs> but uh, but with our with the GPUs on iOS devices these days really cook. So we can we can get through that uh, you know essentially instantaneously with the with the photos. Uh, and on the privacy part. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding from what I've learned is um, if you've got iCloud photo library, and I take a couple pictures with my iPhone, the photos will sync to the cloud, and then they will go to my iPad and my Mac, Yep. but the deep learning analysis doesn't go with them. Each machine performs its own, its own processing on its own time when it, you know, plugged in and appropriate. Is that true? That is that is true right now. So each device does its own uh, processing. Uh, in the future, we could share the results of like the first one who does the work. Just share, just make that work go along uh, for the ride. Uh, but today, it's uh, it's going to be uh, each device doing it independently. When when you think about what's going to happen if we release um, iOS and OS 10 on separate days. Uh, everyone's iPhones will race to do all this work on their on their library uh, first, and then the Mac will it'll it'll be fine at that at that point. So we wouldn't have saved the iPhones from doing the work if we'd had the them share their work or share the work of the Mac. All right. And just to add on that view of of someday they may not all have to do it. It's a view where um, we're not. Apple will never actually know that analysis ourselves. We won't see that data. Right. It's a way to do it. Where we're, we're, we're out of the loop. Yeah, I mean, to, to be clear, the photos themselves uh, are, uh, the architecture is such that they're encrypted in the cloud, and the metadata, um, any metadata about the photos uh, that you create or that we create through uh, deep learning classification is, is encrypted in a way that Apple's not, not reading it. So, uh, I want to I want to get I want to get nerdy on this differential privacy thing. Yeah. Because it's a phrase. It's like an it's like an official thing. I, I've learned a little more. It's not just a phrase you guys made up. It's like a. a it wouldn't have been the phrase we would have made up. Right. We would have done a better name if that's what we did. <laughs> but like in the State of the Union yesterday, I mean, there's there's real math behind it. This is not just a, a name that is applied to policies. This is that's like a, a branch of statistical analysis yes. that it, talk to me about it give me a little i know you touched about it in the keynote but give me give us like a little slightly juicier layman's overview of, of differential privacy sure yeah i mean of course of course the idea is that um, if if we wanted to know um, 
what word, you know, a new word that everyone was, uh, that lots of people were typing that we didn't know so that we would stop marking as a spelling error. Or maybe we'd even suggest it on the keyboard. Like men um, or something. Yeah, yeah. like now that's, it's just, it's trending, it's hot. We want, you know, we want all our customers to be able to know that word. But we don't want to know that you and Phil are, in particular, are typing it. We want to have no way to have any, any knowledge of that. You can imagine if, if what we're essentially assembling is a picture of little, little pieces of data, you know, of the forest, uh, but all we're getting is a little piece. And, and when we get that little piece, even each device will statistically, much of the time, even lie about its little piece, right? But those lies will all cancel out right. with enough data and the picture will, will suddenly resolve, will, 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 with enough data points, right. will resolve itself. Um, and so, and yet, and literally, if we were trying to learn a word, we would send one bit, we'd send a position and a sync, we'd, we'd hash the word, we'd send a single bit from the hash. We'd say at position 23, Phil saw a one. But Phil's phone would flip a coin and actually say, actually, I'm gonna lie about it. I'm gonna say zero even though I saw a one. And that's the data that goes to Apple. Right. Then Apple, with enough of that data, can build a composite, a composite picture and say, holy smokes, we got a word here, and this many people roughly are seeing it. And that's typically what you want to know. You want to know what's happening at large, but we have no desire to know what specifically who is doing Which is typically what. what you would want to know. It's not typically what other companies in and, the industry would want to know. And, 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 and part of the reason this is so important to get into is because you know, there's the, the, the theory that, well, we can just anonymize the data and send it up and then all's good. And it's a bunch of crap because I can send all this data and say, hey, I don't know who you are. Oh, but I happen to know that same location you go to every night. I happen to know the same place you go to work every day. I've got all this data. I just don't know your name or your ID. Boy, it's really hard to reverse engineer than anonymous data. Right? So what you need to do is create a system that goes beyond anonymizing to really make it impossible to reconfigure who that user is. So, so the way I have it written down here is that it, if it works as you're describing it, it means it's not just that Apple doesn't use that information to reverse the anonymity, it's that mathematically you can't. We can't. Right, it's the, dis the design of the system is such that it's not even possible if new executives come in in a few years and maybe they w would like to, you know. <laughs> poke around. Right. But companies right. change. I mean, that is No, true. no, I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. And the point, the point of view, I mean, honestly, any, it, it, the point of view that someone says, uh, hey, I, I know we know a ton about you, but don't worry, we're nice guys. And our bit, you know, we're, it's all good. Well, okay, maybe you're nice guys 10 years from now who's running this thing. Right. Or what if someone breaks into your computers? Are they nice guys? Right. right? So you just don't want to have any central source that has that kind of knowledge. Because in the fullness of time, anything is possible. Uh, and so differential privacy is, I mean, there, there are mathematical proofs that will, will show that, uh, that you, you cannot, with any confidence, determine anything about any of the people contributing to the data set, and we think that's important. All right, speaking of companies that, that do collect some information about people, uh, <laughs> Google and Facebook are two competitors that, and I know a lot of times when you guys talk about these companies, you might talk about search engines, and you might talk about social networks, uh, because you're gentlemen. Uh, but I'll, I will name names, and I'm gonna just point out that Google and Facebook are both, uh, and actively pursuing 
a lot of the same goals. I mean, just the, the image, rec or image analysis, that's a mountain, that's a horse. Those companies are showing similar things. Yeah. You guys are showing this. Uh, but it really is, it, to, I don't want to abuse the metaphor, but it's a 180 degree different tactic where they're doing it with cloud servers and doing the computing in the cloud on data that they've aggregated there. And your method is to do it distributed on the actual devices. Critics are saying, and it's, I'm not me, I'm not saying this, I'm like, let's see. I, 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 no, I mean, I'm, I'm totally like, okay, I saw your keynote, I'm looking forward to trying it, and yeah. let's see if it works for me. I, I you know, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I think absolutely. it might, but, but critics are I saying, think it will. critics are already saying, and they've obviously since the keynote was just yesterday, I've seen it in a couple of articles, that your, your strategy is doomed to keep <laughs> Apple behind them because the Google and Facebook way is the only way that works. And I, I'm not quite sure where that comes from because... Their PR department. I mean... <laughs> of a prominent search engine or social network provider of, that we yeah. don't know about. I, I think part of it, is, in my mind, is maybe there's like an assumption on the part of some people in the press that, that a server farm has this massive amount of computational power and that a puny little phone can't compete. But it's not like there's one person's iPhone who's trying to do the image analysis for all the photos on iCloud. Like there are a billion phones to throw at this problem. Right, a billion active devices. So yeah. like the billion active Apple devices that are out there in the aggregate have an enormous amount of CPU power. That's right, that's right. Uh, the other thing is there's, there's this idea that, well, if you don't have the data, uh, how would you ever learn? Well, it turns out if you want to get pictures of mountains, you don't need to get it out of people's personal photo libraries. Like, we, we found out we could, we could find some pictures of some mountains. We did some tough detective work and we found them. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, so, moving on, Siri. Um, Siri now has an API, and it's six categories. I don't know if I wrote, I didn't write them down, but it's like ride sharing, um, messaging, photo search, voice, voice calls, payment, payment, we're missing one more. <laughs> Why? Okay, sending money, yeah. No, we did payment, all right. I could say it a few different ways, we well, could get past six. There's six, six distinct categories. Workouts. Workouts, there we go, thank you. Yeah. Um, this is why I should have a live audience for all my shows. crowdsourcing right here, but it's totally uh, anonymous. For all my shows. And we don't know who said it. We don't, we don't, it's like. <laughs> so why, why restrict Siri to those six specific categories? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to modeling the, the domains well. Um, in order to understand what someone is saying, people, people are going to say, are going to speak to Siri in a whole bunch of different ways, and even in a whole bunch of different languages. Uh, and when they say, when they want to say, uh, send a message to Phil uh, saying that I'm going to be late for the interview, then we, I could have said that in dozens of other other ways. I could have said, WeChat Phil that I'm going to be late for the interview. WeChat Phil using WeChat telling him that, et cetera. And I even could say something like WeChat Phil, and then I'd need to know like, 
okay, well, what do you want to say to him? Um, and Siri knows all of this because Siri understands the domain of messaging well. It understands all the vocabulary. It understands what the, the verbs are, what the objects are, uh, and can collect them and can do so in a dialogue. Um, and so we want to make sure that when you're talking to your assistant, that your assistant is, is consistently um, intelligent about understanding you and how flexible you can be in talking to it. And so to do that, we had to develop those domains. And so these are the domains that we've developed in a way that developers can plug in. We'll do more and more of that over time. And of course, we'll search for more and more flexible ways to enable developers to do that time. But we want to make sure that what we do is preserve the uh, intelligence of your assistant. You know, it would be really, it would have been super easy for us to say, hey, just tell us a trigger word or the name of your app, and we'll hand you a string. Right. And good luck. And so you'd say something to Siri, and most of the time you, you get back the app doing something crazy, and the user would say, what in the heck, Siri doesn't understand me, I don't understand this. Um, and in this case, we're able to be consistent about Siri's ability to understand you. And so we'll, we'll make models more and more powerful, and we'll do more of them for more domains, uh, but we, we start with the baseline of have a quality experience around what we cover. And I think this is an insight into how we it's not right or wrong how we approach things differently than some other companies do. We, we, we've all been seeing stories for a while saying, hey, Apple, some other companies are doing some assistance and they're allowing these, these other apps to be bots and to hand off and, and do things for them. You're not, you're behind. Um, where when we have thought about doing it for a while, we thought about it since the very beginning of Siri, which is we needed a, a solution to how, how do you keep Siri from being smart at one thing and then stupid at another? That will be an inconsistent experience and not what we want. We need Siri to be equally smart at all the things we do. And as it gets extended, that intelligence needs to extend. And so the team has been work, working hard at that where others shoved in to, quickly to do things that don't translate that intelligence to third-party apps. And so to do that means you have to, with intention, add categories and domains. The hope is to add more and more so that users can ask anything they want over time and use any of their apps that they love and it all works. It just takes time building domains. So we'd rather take the time to do it right than rush out just because it gets a good story to say you have something. One of the things I've, like in the last year or so, maybe half year, but I've noticed it and I've, so I, I bang this drum a couple times a month on Daring Fireball is, is why the industry as a whole doesn't seem to count iMessage as a messaging platform. And you know the, the number that always gets thrown out is monthly active users. And WhatsApp has so many monthly active users and so they're worth so many billions of dollars. And uh, iMessage has, must you know is right has to be right up there in terms of you know monthly active users, daily active users, hourly active users, yeah. users sending iMessages during the talk show. Uh, <laughs> is that frustrating? I don't. I mean, no, it's because okay. customers. I mean, really. I mean, customers don't read those things. It's all inside the yeah. Beltway kind of like who feels prouder that they made a list. It doesn't matter to users. Yeah. I mean, Messages is the, the most used app on iOS, period. Right. So it's used a lot. And, and certainly, uh, we saw that every time uh, we'd add a couple new emoji, it would be like the biggest thing. We'd work all year on like a new file system or something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, 
And it turned out the rest of the world outside this room was more excited about the two new emoji. And so uh, we, 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 we figured, you know, if there's one place we could make a tremendous difference in how people uh, experience iOS fundamentally, they're spending a lot of time in messages. And so uh, we put a ton of, of creative energy into it and, and ultimately through opening up to developers, I think the, the collective energy that'll go into making messages great is gonna be phenomenal. In the keynote, I was sitting like in the mid, middle of the floor, halfway back, halfway in the center, just right in the middle. I really, it was a great place to hear the, the reactions. The, the biggest reaction I thought of the entire keynote was when you announced that emoji were going to 3x. <laughs> I saw, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not exaggerating, and I, uh, it was like a real visceral buzz, and it's like, and here's a crowd of people, you know, developers who are, who are more technically minded, and they are here to hear about technical details, and this thing that is really just, you know, it's just more fun, got this really powerful reaction. And well, next seems... year we're going to 4X. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we don't let you out. Now we're going to be held to that. And next yeah. year when we don't, they'll be like, you said 4X. <laughs> Apple, you're, you're late, right. you're late. And then eventually it'll be finally 4X. <laughs> uh, get, coming down to home stretch. There, there, there's a few competitors right now back programming. Like, 4X, let's beat up to 4X. <laughs> Oh, it's like the, the Onion story about uh, the chic, chic CEO says, screw this, we're going to five blades. Yeah. And, and like three years later, she yeah. came out with a five-blade razor. You can't, yes. can't underestimate what people will, will stoop to. Um, any of the other iMessage stuff that, that, that it, I mean, because clearly it is a lot of work. I and mean, a lot of it's very fun. A lot of it is, is you know, the developer integration um, it really turns it into a platform. It's yeah. not just a thing that people can text with now, it's a thing that, that the people in this crowd can write software for. Anything yep. that stands out that maybe didn't get enough love in the keynote? Well, we, we talked about the way in which I think these apps can spread kind of in a, in a really great way virally. We didn't talk about that at all, and I think that's gonna be really powerful for developers and is gonna make it worth developers while to put some energy into, into them. Uh, we made them really easy to create. Um, so if artists, we, th we think there'll be a community of artists that will build sticker packs that are just really fun and they don't need to write any code to do it. So we think that's going to be really important. Um, <laughs> uh, also, uh, I think the, the way that they are um, distributed, if you have, it's not just about the extension. The extension can be part of your app. And so there's some cases where you want a model where the extension is sort of in cooperation with your larger app experience. I mean, one, one simple example would be like if, if you have your, your sports app, your sports app knows what your favorite teams are, um, well, your extension in messages that let you share those clips or, or whatever is going gonna, is gonna to know that uh, as well. So there's a, a connection there. We uh, have one where... Um, something that people like to do a lot is share music, especially you hear something, you're like, wow, this is great, I want to tell my friend about this awesome song. Well, if you go to the uh, Apple Music extension, it knows what's now playing uh, it, you know, in your music, and it knows what you listened to with the last few songs, 
And so that's just one tap to share. And so I think there'll be interesting integrations where the message extension is sort of the tip of an, the iceberg of an experience that you have inside your app as well. Uh, all right, moving on to watchOS. I, what you guys do year after year is make iterative improvements to your software. And you yeah. add features, you take what was slow and you make it fast, you take what was ugly and you make it look better. Um, but the performance improvement on app launch speed on, on watchOS 3, it does not look like one year over a year. Like, right. it, it's crazy. And it, I really did, in the keynote, had a, uh, I got to see this. And then when I got you know, hands on with a watch running watchOS 3, it's for real. It's for real. It really is. Anybody in the audience, has, have you guys upgraded? Anybody? It, it's for real. How is that possible? Uh, I mean, a couple of things. We, uh, we certainly actually had some RAM to spare. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it turns out that, uh, you know, if, if people are running, you know, they have their favorite 10 apps, uh, we can keep them mostly running. You know, we can keep them mostly resident. We'll, we'll, we'll halt them so they're not burning CPU, but we can keep them mostly resident, um, which means you're not doing all the work that goes into launching an app when you take them live. But the other thing is, um, it turns out when we first uh, we're coming out with a watch OS. We were being really conservative about understanding how people were going to use the watch and trying to make sure we could hit our, our goal of a very solid all-day battery life. So you could use it all day and you could charge it at night. And we found we, we'd actually like really overshot the goal. And so, uh, you know, which was an area of just massive focus and paranoia throughout the release. You know, uh, we needed to make sure that we, we squeezed every little bit of juice out of the thing. And so uh, realizing we had this budget, we said, hey, look, we actually have enough to do background updates. You know, we had overshot enough that we can keep these apps both in memory, but also keep them up to date throughout the day. So when you look at them, they're already there. It's not like launch and then wait them, let, have them get the information. It's they already have the information. And so those were two really vital techniques. I, I think the other thing is, as you talk about, you, you build something as new and different as the watch, and until you finish and you live on it and you figure out like what's really the essence of, of, of this thing and appreciate which problems are the most important to solve, we realize that the watch is, is all about glanceability. You know, it's, it's useful to the, to the extent that like, okay, I can solve my task, I'm done. If I'm up here and I'm waiting and I'm fiddling around, my arm's getting tired, this is no fun anymore, I'm gonna do, do it a different way. And with that as our obsession for the last year, um, we've taken all of those tasks and we said, you have to be able to finish the task end to end, two seconds, right? And that meant the launch better be the instant part because now we need to let the user think and do something in two seconds and get it done. And with that focus, you find a way and we chipped away at it. What really strikes me once I got the hands on with it and I could really see it is it's just how much it, the design changes to the navigation of the user experience are exactly coinciding with the engineering improvements to make it faster. So the fact that glances are no longer a separate thing is because the apps themselves in the dock can serve as glances because they're getting the background updates because you made the changes that make them stay resident in memory. Yeah, it's nice when it all comes together. It really? It's, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the other thing I'll add that's that once you start to use uh, the new watchOS, um, in addition to having the, the apps come across faster and you can get access to them quickly, your watch faces in a sense become 
sort of apps in themselves in the sense that you change the ones you use and you rearrange them and change the complications. For example, uh, I would normally keep the activity rings on my watch face, but now I can choose to make that the next one and I just swipe over to them and swipe back because I use the activity watch face versus needing the rings. And then I can have a different watch face for some other time of the day when I need some other actions and access to app apps. So that becomes a much quicker and more useful way to expand the things you do with it. It's really profound changes through the interaction model. Yeah, and really different complications too. So if you're going to be in more of your, your workout mode, uh, you would swipe over and the complications that are relevant to that and therefore the launchers essentially for that are right there. So you kind of go, here's what, you know, I'm at work, I'm going to be this way, I'm, uh, you know, out, out with the family, I'm going to go this way. And you have all the different activities that are relevant to that. It's like you've got a, almost a custom dock or a custom launcher based on your watch face. So that's another element where I feel like it's really come together in a nice way. Um, yeah, the team has done a really great job. So just wrapping up, coming down to home site, Swift. Now you were on my show a few months ago yeah. when Swift went open source. It was very nice. We had a good time. Um, a lot of dynamism. And we, <laughs> and we talked about Swift use within Apple and, and why you guys can't yet write the OS in your apps in Swift, but that you're using it, your engineers are using it to write unit tests and stuff like that, and it's getting used. But I saw in the announcement that this new Swift Playground app is itself written in Swift. Yeah. Well, actually, in an OS X, um, like most of the dock and Mac most of, of mission control, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, God. <laughs> Another dollar. <laughs> in, our, in our Sunday rehearsal. When, when was that name first hinted at? <laughs> I don't know. Last year. Right, right here. here. Yeah. I thought I was being so transparent. <laughs> I saw right through it. I know. You were very polite. In, in, in our uh, in our run through for the uh, the show, when I, I I say oh we we're changing the name to Mac OS, and this is like on Sunday, and my next slide is to say something about how you know we have these great new features in Mac OS, and I literally go and so our new release is Mac OS, and so we have some great features in OS 10. <laughs> it's uh, it's tough. We spent a lot 15 years. It's right. a long time, but I think we all feel great about the new name. Uh, and, and anyway, in. <laughs> It, in in macOS, uh, the dock is substantially converted, um, so we're, we're uh, mission control, all those areas are, are like using Swift a lot. So it's starting to, starting to spread a lot internally. There are some barriers, but I think this year, the, mo the most important thing, and I think Chris Latner really covered it in the State of the Union, is getting to source stability. Uh, and so we decided this year, like we're going to put that over all, all the priorities, take what we've learned, you know, when we first shipped Swift a couple of years ago, the objective was let's make sure that it's familiar from an API point of view. You know, minimize the, the kind of transition of, oh, hold on, I gotta learn all new method names for all the classes I already know. And so we really bias toward that. Now people are so familiar with Swift, the priority is let's make sure those APIs are all very native to Swift in their feel. And so we've done all the hard work uh, to, to update all the APIs, all the naming conventions, and take some major APIs like Core Graphics and Lib Dispatch and make them just awesome for Swift. And so that was, yeah, that's important stuff. But what, what that means is 
uh, we've, we've achieved that level of source stability. So next year it won't be like, mm. oh boy, you know, yeah. error, you know, as a developer. So that's, that's the important thing. ABI stability, which means literally that the, the Swift binary you built could be uh, linked against the future libraries. That's one that we made a lot of progress. Haven't gotten all the way there, but that's uh, far less, that's far more of an issue for us internally than it is for uh, developers. It's important for developers, but much. Uh, but I think the source stability one was the right priority, and, and I feel really good about the progress that the team made on that. Uh, last question. How about one thing that, that you guys announced yesterday, whether it was in the keynote or not, maybe something that missed the keynote, but one thing that, that you think deserves a little extra attention? And I'll let you guys think about it. I will go first, and, and your correct answer is probably new file system. <laughs> is that right? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say... I'm going to say universal clipboard because I've always wanted this and I, I, for me it's links. It's like I'm on my phone and it's like, oh, I want to post this to Daring Fireball, but I'm in my office so why would I do it on a phone? I, I, I'll go sit down at my, at my iMac and do it with the real keyboard, but how do I get this from here to there? Yeah. And it, man, what I want to do is just copy it and yeah. go over there and hit Command V. And it, and again, the, the thinking through that you guys did of how to do this in a way that isn't going to surprise people in yep. a bad way. There's like a two minute timeout. Yep. Uh, so like if I copy something on my phone right now and tomorrow I paste it my Mac, I'm not getting that. That's right. Because it's it's really like what you're, it, a ways of detecting what's, what's in well, it. Well, and so, even the communication is like the other continuity features is peer to peer. So it's not like you're sending everything you copy up to the cloud all of a right. sudden just so that it can get down to the other device. It really is about, you know, kind of two, did it here, copy, paste, which I think is, is absolutely what people want, and it has the right, um, right privacy and performance characteristics. Uh, and as you say, it's, it's, uh, no, it gets rid of the surprises. And it just turns out to be the most, once you have it, it's the most natural way in the world to do yeah. these kinds of things. So I, I think the team did, uh, did awesome work there. Yeah, All right. I think that's great. Do I have to say new file system again? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think the new file system is, is, is great. Uh, uh, and, and by the way, I mean, the prospect of, this is when you have to get right, let's say. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, the, the, we have uh, an, an awesome file system team who really knew which problems we needed to solve for a world of, of flash storage uh, and uh, has done a super solid job. And we're being, you know, we're being conservative about how we're rolling it out as a developer preview right. so people can... Uh, kick the tires on it this year, uh, but we look forward to making it part of the products going forward. And I, I mean, I think it's going to be be great. And obviously, we didn't we didn't talk about it because we don't talk about peer developer preview material right. there. But I think in terms of something that's important for the platform going forward, it's it's big. What do you? So let's just say three years from now, we're all using iPhones that are using APFS instead of HFS plus. What would be like a noticeable improvement to the? To the experience. So, so it'll help with performance. It'll help with things like how we do software updates and other things because we can we can snapshot volumes. We can roll things back. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of, of important attributes there. It's important when you think about multi-user, like how files are protected between multiple users on a Mac because we actually have file system level encryption uh, now standard across right. both platforms. Uh, and so, I think uh, from a security point of view. Uh, it's it's big and and I think performance. I mean now you do a a copy or even like the safe save operation. When you save documents in a lot of apps, it's like 
move that one aside, create another whole copy of all of that, now overwrite some of it, now delete the old directory. Um, now that's atomic and the clone file makes all of that super fast. So uh, I think it's just gonna be uh, great across the board. I, I wanna answer in a, in a very different direction. Um, of the keynote, the thing that we haven't talked about that to me was really amazing was we had um, a bunch of present uh, demoers who had never been in a keynote before. It was their first time. And they were fantastic. Stacy did a great job. Uh, Bethany and Emron did a great job. Bose did an incredible job. Yep. And, um, and Cheryl, I wasn't gonna forget, and Cheryl did an incredible job. And, and all of them work on the things they demo. They're just, and, and, and they're, and they were, they were fantastic. So that, that's my sort of unsung thing of the keynote was those presenters. I, I said mid-keynote, I was sitting with Ben Thompson and I said, I can't believe that none of these people have ever done this before because yeah. they're amazing. And they really, did, they really did kick ass up there. That they was sure great. Um, that's it, unless you guys have anything else for me. <laughs> Just thank you. I, I want to give some thanks here. I want to thank our sponsors, um, MailChimp, uh, Microsoft, and mad.com, meh.com. Go there and buy some junk. <laughs> uh, I want to thank Jake Schumacher and Jed Hurt. They're doing the video here. So if you're watching on, uh, at home, you can thank them. They are the co-makers of the upcoming documentary, App the Human Story, which has been in the works for a while. Uh, I've seen a rough cut. It is amazing. It is really coming along. Uh, AppDocumentary.com if you want to see more. Uh, Drew Bischoff from Hybrid Events is here running whatever apparatus is involved in doing the live streaming, which I've heard is very hard. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to thank Mezzanine and the entire staff here who have been... Uh, they're led by Megan Rogerson. She's great. She's been here all four years that I've been here. The staff is great. Uh, the bartenders are great, security guys. I mean, it's just a really great place, and I really appreciate it. Um, I want to thank uh, Paul Kafasis and my wife, Amy Gruber, uh, of <laughs> Just the Tip fame, their podcast that is on, I don't know, some kind of hiatus. Uh, uh, but they're the ones who made this event run so that I can just sit back here and be nervous and make these cards with questions and not pay attention to any of the details. I don't know anything that's gone on out here. And the fact that you guys even have seats is thanks to them. Um, and I want to thank Phil and Craig for being here. Thank you. Unbelievable. Uh, thank you. Last but not least, thank you for being here. <laughs>